I will be reading Matthew uh, chapter 25, verses 19 through 23. Again, Matthew chapter 25, verses 19 through 23. Now, after a long t- uh, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Uh, And he who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? The Bible says he's coming back. The Bible says he's coming at an hour when we don't expect him. Are you ready for his return? As we think about being servants of Jesus Christ, I don't know that there's a better passage, a better parable that deals with servanthood in all the New Testament than what Kyle just read from a moment ago, the parable of the talents. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already done that, to Matthew chapter 25, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 and following this evening for just a few minutes. As we think about being better servants, improving our serve, Thinking about the parable of the talents will help us to do this. Now, what is a parable? A parable is a story that Jesus told, and the way that we like to describe parables is that they are earthly stories. That is, they're about things like farming or shepherding. An earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. The word itself, parable, means to lay alongside. So a parable is telling something, a story that corresponds to a spiritual truth that might be kind of difficult to grasp otherwise. And so when Jesus told parables, when he spoke in parables, they were illustrations to help people understand spiritual truths and spiritual realities. The word parable is found 52 times in your New Testament. It's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the book of Hebrews. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Hebrews, the word parable is found. What a parable is, ultimately, is a window into God's heart. When we look at parables, when we read parables, we're seeing something about God. We're seeing something about who He is and what He's all about. What what makes Him tick? A window into God's heart. But not only that, a parable is a mirror in which we ought to see ourselves. When you read about the Good Samaritan or when you read about the unjust steward, we ought to at least sometimes see ourselves reflected in those parables because that's the way Jesus intended them. He wanted people to listen to these stories, and he wanted them not just to see how God sees things, but he wanted them to see themselves. He wants us to see ourselves when he tells parables. A parable is an alarm, an alarm that calls us to action. And so when we read the parables of Jesus, they're not just bedtime stories for children. They are stories that are intended to call us to do something, to change the way that we're living, to live in a way that pleases and honors God, to think about how we're doing what we're doing and why we're doing what we're doing. Those are what parables are all about. As you look at Matthew chapter 25, it's a long chapter. And in Matthew chapter 25, just to kind of give you some context, 
Jesus is going to be on trial in chapter 27 and then crucified. And then in chapter 28 of Matthew is the resurrection. And so we're right at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the three parables that are told in Matthew 25 are all parables about being prepared. Are you ready for the return of Jesus Christ? Three parables about being prepared and staying prepared. The first one is found in verses 1 through 13, the parable of the virgins, the wise and the foolish. Keep your lamps trimmed with oil. Keep them ready so that when the bridegroom comes, you can enter into the feast. And five virgins were not ready. They were not prepared. And so they found themselves shut out. The parable of the virgins. It's about watching for the Lord's return. Not only that, but the parable of the talents in verses 14 through 30 about working for the Lord's return. The master goes into a far country and leaves his servants with talents, money to invest for his use, for his purposes, working in the Lord's service. I want to be a worker for the Lord, the song that we just sang a moment ago, that very, very well summarizes the parable of the talents. And then third, you find the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus talks about the end of time. He talks about when he returns, how all of humanity is going to be divided, the sheep and the goats, the way a shepherd would divide the sheep from the goats in the first century. And the idea of the sheep and the goats parable is that we're going to be weighed. We're going to be measured by how we've lived our lives. And so all three parables have to do with being prepared, being ready for our master to return. When you think about the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, 14 through 30, the gist of the parable is this. A man goes into a far country. He's a wealthy man. And he leaves with his servants various amounts of money, the talents. A talent in this parable is an amount of money. And he leaves the money with them because they're supposed to be investing and working and making that money work for their master while he's gone. And then when the master comes back, he's going to settle accounts with his servants. And there are three servants in the parable. There's one that's given five talents, one that's given two talents, and one that's given just one talent. And the five and the two talent men both invest well. They invest wisely. And when their master demands an accounting, they say, here, master, we've doubled what you've given us. But the one talent man, he takes his talent and buries it in the ground. And the Bible says that when the master returns, he's displeased, he's angry, and has the one talent man cast into what Jesus calls outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What are the lessons that we're supposed to learn from this particular parable? The lessons are twofold. Here they are. Number one, brothers and sisters and friends, God has given everybody talents, and I give that in quotes, to use. Every single one of us God has given us something that is a stewardship and a responsibility that we ought to use for his glory and for his purposes. He's done that with all of us. And the second lesson, like unto it, is this. We are going to be judged according to how we have chosen to invest or not the talents that God has entrusted to us. God has left us as stewards in this world and our responsibility and our task is to use the things that God has trusted us with to his glory for his purposes. With all that in mind, what I want us to do for just a few moments this evening is to look at the parable of the talents. I want us to look first of all at the master. Who does he represent? Then talk about the talents and what they are. Talk about the good servants and then the evil servant. 
And as we unfold and describe all of these different entities in the, tal- in the parable of the talents, it'll help us to see something of what Jesus wants to see in ourselves. So first and foremost tonight, as we look at Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, read with me if you would, the kingdom of heaven is like the son of man, or like a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. All right? In the first place, the master in this parable is Jesus. The man who is wealthy and goes into a far country. And the reason why we know the master is Jesus in this parable, well, there's several reasons. In the first place, when you look back at verse 13, at the end of the parable of the virgins, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Jesus gives a warning, watch, be alert, look out for the return of the Son of Man. And then in the very next breath in verse 14, he gives another parable and begins, who is the one that's going to return? Who is the one that's going to come from the far country and settle accounts? It's the same individual, it's Jesus Christ. The Son of Man. But not only that, we know the Master is Jesus because of the instruction He's given. He's talking about the kingdom of heaven and things concerning the kingdom. He is the King. And as you think about the instruction that He's giving, He's saying, the way that we live in the kingdom ought to correspond with the way that this parable unfolds. We ought to think of ourselves as servants who've been entrusted with talents by the Master, by Jesus Himself. As you continue looking at the passage and looking at the parable, the Bible indicates that he is going to be absent, traveling to a far country. You know, the Bible's full of passages about Jesus being with us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Remember Matthew 28, verse 20? I will never leave you nor forsake you, says the Lord. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Jesus has promised to be with us, but there's a sense in which he's not with us in the same way that he was with the apostles during his earthly ministry, where they could physically see him and they could touch him and they could listen to his voice audibly. And so he's gone to a far country. Jesus rose from the dead and on on the Mount of Olives, he ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. He's gone into a far country, and now we've been entrusted with stewardships to be managed and to be used for his glory. And so the master is going to be absent for a time. And then we see his return. Look at verse 19 of the parable. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Brothers and sisters, and when Jesus returns, when he comes again, he's coming to settle accounts. He's coming to make judgments. He's coming to ask, how have you invested and how have you lived with the things that I've entrusted to you and the people that I've entrusted to you? He's coming to settle accounts. When we think about the return of Jesus, it's much like the return of the Lord in this particular passage. His return is sudden. His return is visible. We can see him coming. When he returns, his return will be unexpected. I suspect that if the one-talent man had known the day and the hour in which his master would return, the one-talent man would have been busier about his Lord's work. He would have invested. But since he didn't know when his master was going to return, he thought it was safe for whatever reason to bury that talent in the ground. Not only is his return going to be unexpected, but his return is a time, as we've said, for an accounting to be made. 
Jesus is the master in this parable. He's the one who goes to a far country and he expects his servants to work in his, his service, to, to invest in his service as if he were actually here, as if he were the one that was managing these stewardships. We ought to manage the things that Jesus has entrusted to us as if we had the interest of the Lord himself at our heart. The master is Jesus in this parable. Now, secondly, as you think about the parable of the talents, notice this. The talents themselves are stewardships. I realize that in the English language, English has changed from 1611 when talent was used to describe what the master left. And so when we think of talents, we think of somebody that's really talented at playing the piano or somebody that's really talented. Uh, They've got the ability to speak in public and they're really talented at doing that. That's not what a talent is in this parable. In this parable, a talent is a sum of money. That's all it is. It's as if the master writes a check to all of his servants and he gives them all a sum of money. And the idea is that these servants are supposed to take this money and they're supposed to manage their master's affairs. In the first century, in ancient times, since they didn't have the internet and they didn't have telephones when someone traveled to a far country who's going to manage my investments who's going to manage my affairs while I'm gone the servants were going to manage their master's affairs and so according to the abilities of each servant the master left talents in their hands notice that there is a variety of stewardship As you look at verse 14 of this particular passage in 15, the Bible indicates that he gives five talents to one man, two talents to another man, and one talent to an individual man. Now, one of the things that you realize as you read the parable of the talents, God never intended for all of his stewardship to be entrusted to just one individual. That's not the way God operates. That's not the way he works. You know, sometimes we get the idea that what we need is to concentrate all kinds of ability and stewardship in one individual, but that's not the way that Jesus views his church. The way Jesus views his church and his disciples is everybody gets stewardship. Everybody gets talents to invest and to use to the glory of God. And that way there can be discipleship in everyone's life. We're using what Jesus has blessed us with in a way that honors him. What are some stewardships? What are some blessings that God has entrusted to you and me? On the screen behind me, at least one thing that we ought to think about is God has given all of us his word, hasn't he? He's going to demand an accounting for how we've used and how we've invested his word. First Corinthians chapter four, verse one, it's a stewardship that God has given to us. We are blessed in our lives with the people of God. It's a stewardship. The relationships that we have because of Jesus and in Jesus, they are a stewardship. The friendships that we build because we belong to Christ and because we love each other and because we want to serve him, those are stewardships to be managed and used wisely. As iron sharpens iron, so when one man sharpens the countenance of another, the Bible says, we're to be stewards of God's people. We're to watch out and care for one another. Not only that, we are to be stewards of God's manifold grace. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. The manifold, the multifaceted grace of God. 
while the master left in the parable sums of money with his servants. When we think about what God has entrusted to us, some of us ought to think about what we're doing with our finances. We ought to think about whether we're using our finances in a way that honors Jesus Christ because he's going to demand an accounting for that, but it's more than just finances. It also has to do with our relationships. It has to do with God's word. It has to do with our abilities that God has entrusted to us. How are you using the things that God has put into your hands? How are you investing in his, in his service? Notice the expectation of stewardship. The expectation that the master had was that these servants were going to use their talents in a way that honored him, that he would have done if he had been present. And so when we look at the parable of the talents, one of the lessons that we learn is that those who are blessed, those who are given a trust from Jesus Christ, we're to invest. We're to invest to the glory of God. We're to invest in things that are eternal. Don't lay up for yourself treasure on heaven. Lay up for yourself or treasure on earth. Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. We're to invest wisely, redeeming the time for the days are evil. We're to invest with a view to the day of judgment, the fact that we're going to stand before the Lord and knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 2, 10. We're to invest to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. God expects his people to invest, to invest wisely, to invest with the end in mind. How are we using the stewardships that God has entrusted to us? One last thought before we leave the idea of the talents. Brothers and sisters and friends, God has made us stewards of the things that are in our hands, and that's all we are. Stewardship is not ownership. It's not the same thing. Because God has entrusted some people to us and he's entrusted some relationships to us and some finances to us, those things are all well and good. And we might even speak of them as if they belong to us, but ultimately they don't. They are stewardships that belong to God ultimately. The Bible says in Psalm 50 verse 10, the cattle on on a thousand hills are mine, says the Lord. God is the one who owns all things. We are merely stewards In Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, Job, after having lost everything, said, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job understood the principle of stewardship. God had entrusted some things to Job, and if those things were taken from Job, his stewardship was was just less, was just diminished. In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40, Jesus reminds us that we're to love the God of heaven with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's how we show ourselves to be good stewards of God's blessings. The idea is basically this. God owns it all. God owns everything. And therefore, we're to see our talents this way. The parable of the talents reminds us of this truth. So the master is Jesus. The talents are a stewardship or stewardships that God has given to us. Your family is a stewardship that God has given to you. Your loved ones, your friendships, your finances, those are stewardships. Your time, your energy, those are stewardships that God has blessed us with. We're to use those to the glory of God. Now look at the servants. As you read the parable of the talents, the Bible indicates that the good servants are what we call faithful disciples. Faithful disciples. 
The Bible says in verse 16, he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. So what these good servants do is they go and they invest what's been entrusted to them. I find it fascinating in this parable that these men are blessed differently. One has five talents, one has two talents. And you kind of wonder about the two-talent man. What if he looks at his five-talent fellow servant and says, why does he get so much more? Why does the master think so much more of him than he does of me, that he would give him five talents and me only two? But what's noble and commendable about the two-talent man is that even though he was blessed differently, both of these men behaved the same. And listen, sometimes we get up, we get caught up in measuring stewardship. So-and-so has been blessed with such tremendous resources and blessings, and it feels like I just haven't been blessed with nearly as much. That may well be true, but what we're supposed to get out of the parable of the talents is this. What matters is not how I relate and compare to somebody else. What matters is whether I'm using faithfully what God has put into my hands. And whether you're using faithfully what God has put into your hands. That's what matters in our final accounting with the Lord. So these men are blessed differently and yet they behave the same. They both invested. They both remembered their status. They were the servants. Their master was the one who owned all of this. That's important for everyone who would be a good servant, a good steward. And not only that, they both heard the same commendation. I like how Jesus repeats this, and he does so deliberately in verse 21 and in verse 23 both. Listen, his Lord said to him, both the five and the two-talent man, verse 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. It's been well said that when we stand before the Lord on the day of judgment, the thing that we ought to long to hear best and most is well done, good and faithful servant. You have served me faithfully. You have done what I expected you to do with what I entrusted you with. They both heard the same commendation regardless of what God gave, gave them to begin with. And then notice this, they both received the same reward. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you faithful over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I believe this parable points to heaven. I believe it points to a never-ending relationship with our God in his presence, face to face. I believe the parable indicates that when we serve loyally and faithfully our master, we haven't earned anything. We haven't gotten the right to do anything. All we've done is we've been faithful disciples, faithful stewards, faithful servants of what God has entrusted us with. Jesus has saved us from our sin by what he did on the cross and he says, well done, good and faithful servants to those who are watching and working in light of his return. The good servants are disciples who are using their talents and their abilities as good stewards. Now, what about the wicked servant? The poor servant. He's an unfaithful disciple. The Bible indicates that the one who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And when his Lord returned, 
he says this to his master. The Bible says in verse, uh, verse 24, he had received the one talent, came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. But his Lord was angry. His Lord called him a wicked and lazy servant. What's going on here? The Bible indicates that he hid his talent in the ground. You know, in the days before they had the FDIC that supposedly backstops and guarantees people's bank accounts, the ground was a pretty safe place to keep money. Because if you went and buried money in the ground, there wasn't a place for, uh, you know, if nobody else knew where that was, then, then it was pretty secure, about as secure as anything could be. But when you think about it, all this man does, this one talent man, is he takes the money, he digs a hole in the ground, and he puts the money there and does nothing with it. He certainly doesn't do what he was expected to do. And people have puzzled over this parable for years. Why did the one talent man hide his talents? And a number of suggestions have been made, and some of these are pretty good ideas when you stop and think about what's going on. Did he hide this one talent because he was bitter? After all, my master didn't think I was worthy of the five talents. He didn't think I was worthy of the two. So I'm kind of upset that my master didn't give me more. I'm just going to go bury and I'm going to go do what I want to do. Or did he hide the talent in the ground because he was preoccupied? Maybe he had better things to do than serve his master. Better things to do than manage his master's accounts and his master's finances in his absence. Why did the one talent man bury his talent? Maybe he was just procrastinating. He had good plans. He had good intentions. But he didn't think his master was going to return so soon. He didn't think that it was going to be quite so sudden that his master came and demanded an accounting. And so he was just putting it off for a while. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, the Bible describes people who look around and they say, where is the promise of the Lord's coming? He said he was coming again. It's 2021. Where is he? But they don't know that the Lord... With him, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years, Peter goes on to say. Why did the one-talent man hide his talent? His own admission is that he was afraid. He was afraid. I didn't invest. I didn't use what you left with me because I knew that you were an austere man. I was afraid, he says. There are a lot of reasons, brothers and sisters and friends, why people don't use their talents why they don't use what God has entrusted them with for his glory. Jesus wants us to stop and to consider, if I'm not investing in the Lord's cause, in the Lord's kingdom, if I'm not thinking about how I can glorify God with the things that he's put into my hands, what are my reasons for doing so? What are my reasons for not investing and not working in his service? The master's response in the first place, when you look at what the master says to the wicked servant, he calls him wicked and lazy. And one of the lessons we learn is that when you and I refuse to use our blessings as good stewards of our master, then we ourselves are what Jesus calls wicked and lazy servants. We're not very good servants. As we think about improving our serve, if I'm not using what God has blessed me with, if I'm looking to something else and someone else and saying, they've got so much more and why didn't I get that? If that's the way we're living our lives, we're wicked and lazy servants. We're unprofitable in his service. Not only that, Jesus pronounces judgment upon this servant. 
It's interesting when Jesus gives these parables, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, when Jesus starts talking about rewards and judgment with the faithful servants, you've got enter into the joy of your Lord. But when you've got the wicked and lazy servant, his judgment is what you have will be taken away and you will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said a great deal about hell. In his evangelistic messages, in the things that he taught, he brought that subject up continually, repeatedly, and he does so here and he does so intentionally. He wants people to know that it's serious business how we use our time and how we use the things that he has entrusted to us. And so the wicked and lazy servant receives his condemnation. And the warning for you and me is this. Think about the fact that Jesus may return. He may return at any moment. How are we using the things that our master has left in our trust? How are we using his word? How are we using our relationships? How are we investing our opportunities and our energies? And is God pleased with our efforts? Those are questions that ought to concern all of us as we think about improving our serve. The parable of the talents can remind us very, very poignantly of the need to wake up and to think about where our priorities truly lie. Maybe you're here this evening and you're not a New Testament Christian and you want to obey the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ, confess his name, repent of your sin, be baptized. It's at the point of baptism that we become Christians. And if you want to do that this evening, there's no better time than right now. If we can help you by praying for you, praying with you, whatever your need, won't you come tonight while together we stand and while we sing?